0: Power on. Hi friends, and welcome to the Pop Culture Retro Rama Podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and I'm here to share memories, thoughts, and information on all manner of retro-related properties. Movies.
1: Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean?
0: Music. I want my MTV. Alright. Comic books. These ain't your daddy's comic books, fanboy. In toys,
1: it's Castle Grayskull,
0: and it's mine. Broadcasting to you from the depths of the Pop Culture Retrorama Vault. So, come join us, won't you? Now you're playing with power. Hey there, friends! Thank you for once again taking the time to join us on a new episode of the Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. With the third season of the Saturday Frights podcast limping along, my fellow writers on the Pop Culture retrorama site felt that perhaps we needed to get together and produce a Halloween special. Not only to remind you of the new direction we are taking with this podcast, with its second season in the very near future, but to also have some holiday fun. On this episode, I will be joined once again by Allison... Ashley, Earl, and Rockford, who will be tackling such seasonal topics as Halloween-appropriate episodes of Quantum Leap, Ray Bradbury's The Halloween Tree, Doctor Who's Fury from the Deep, and Tales from the Dark Side's pilot episode, which was entitled Trick or Treat. Before that, however, we're going to take a quick jaunt back to the 18th century, to a quaint location that is situated between the counties of East Sussex and Kent, a little place called Romney Marsh where the frightening and nefarious character known as the Scarecrow does his business. For that is my subject on this second Halloween special for the Pop Culture Rama Podcast, Walt Disney's 1963 adaptation of The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. With his clothes all torn and tattered, through the black of night he'd ride.
2: From the marsh to the coast like a demon ghost, he'd show his face then hide and he'd laugh. His side Scarecrow, Scarecrow 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 The soldiers of the king feared his name Scarecrow 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 Scarecrow, Scarecrow, Scarecrow
1: The country folk all loved him just the
0: same Before we talk a bit about The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, I think we need to discuss the origin of the character. That was courtesy of Russell Thorndike, a British actor who appeared on stage and in film as well as being an author. In fact, his sister, Sybil, who was also an actor, is credited with co-creating the character too. I found an excerpt online, supposedly from a 1985 program from the Dim Church Day of Sin that is S-Y-N, by the way, that states while with their acting company making a stop in Spartanburg, South Carolina, a man happened to be murdered outside the hotel that the troupe was boarding at. Sybil noticed that the dead man, who was left in the street, seemed to be staring up at her room, which, as you might imagine, unnerved her just a little bit. The program from 85 stated, quote, Sybil was unable to sleep, so she asked Russell to sit up with her. She made a pot of tea while they talked and the character of Dr. Sin was born. As the night went on, they piled horror on horror's head, and after each new horror was invented, they took another squint at the corpse to encourage them. End quote. The first appearance of the feared scarecrow was in a book published in 1915, entitled Dr. Sin, A Tale of Romney Marsh. You see, the feared scarecrow is in actuality the Reverend Dr. Christopher Sin, the vicar of a small village known as Dimchurch, The good reverend, by all accounts, is a gentle and caring soul, an upstanding member of the community who, from his calling, watches over and cares for the spiritual needs of Dimchurch. This is a ruse, however, as Dr. Sin was once known by another name, Captain Clegg, and the blood-chilling tales told of his villainy earned him a rightful page in pirate history. While Dr. Sin might have left the identity of Captain Clegg behind him, he found a new one as a frightening smuggler known as the Scarecrow. He may have left his old name behind, but his behavior as the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh is very much in line with his days of being a pirate. He's quick to discipline or even murder his own men who might step out of line, or those that dare stand in his way. Interestingly enough, and this is obviously a very large spoiler for the first book, but Dr. Sin is killed by the end of it. A sins of the past situation involving his days as a pirate. While the Reverend Dr. Christopher Sin and the Scarecrow are made up, apparently, during the 18th century, smugglers, known as the Hawkehurst Gang, did in fact do business around the very real Romney Marsh. As Russell Thorndike was raised in Kent, with his father being a canon at the Rochester Cathedral, he would have heard many of the stories and legends of the gang of smugglers and their violent clashes with the soldiers of the Crown, there to collect taxes. Well, and to stop the illegal activities of the smugglers. However, and perhaps to Russell Thorndyke's surprise, the character became popular. And with his pulp-like origins, I think it's easy to see why. As a matter of fact, it would seem that in 1925, Thorndyke himself appeared in a stage production of Dr. Sin. One can only assume as the titular character. It was from 1935 until 1944 that six more books were penned by Thorndike. Each, as I understand it, goes a little further back in the history of the character. So, if you were to read them in reverse order, as pointed out online, bit by bit, you would see the downfall of Dr. Christopher Sen. Like I said, he's got no issues with deadly violence in that first book. Also of note is, in the later stories, his frightening alter ego of the Scarecrow seems to be more of a hero, which I suppose is why Walt Disney felt the character would make a good fit for a three-part special for his popular The Magical World of Disney TV series. Although, the 1963 adaptation was not the first time the likes of Dr. Sin, or Captain Clegg for that matter, found themselves being put on film. It was on November 14th of 1937 that Dr. Sin opened in the United States, featuring Oscar winner George Arliss as the titular Dr. Sin. However, on June 13th of 1962, the legendary Peter Cushing appeared as both the smuggler Captain Clegg and, in an appearance sort of like the Scarecrow with glow-in-the-dark paint, in the film Captain Clegg. Although, curiously enough, Cushing doesn't play the Reverend Dr. Christopher Sin, but the Reverend Dr. Bliss. Furthermore, here in the States, it was released not as Captain Clegg, but the bizarrely titled Night Creatures. Perhaps negotiations were already underway with Disney at the time Captain Clegg went into production.
2: How did he die, man? Dr. Pepper signed the certificate, Natural Causes, but I should have thought from the look of the poor fellow that he died of fright. This is a frightened village. Here, it is wiser to close your ears to a scream in the night. The night creatures.
0: Whatever the reason might be, it was co-produced by Hammer Films. And Captain Clegg is a very entertaining film. Of course, with Peter Cushing, how could you go wrong? The teleplay for the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh was handled by Robert Westerby, who also wrote the screenplays for 1954’s "They Who Dare, 1961’s Gray Friar’s Bobby: The True Story of a Dog, in addition to the Three Lives of Thomasina. That last one is appropriate as it starred the late and great Patrick McGowan, who would also be cast as Dr. Christopher Sen and the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. And while I will admit that on the pop culture retrorama site, I have gone on quite a bit about my love of McGowan's work, in particular, the Prisoner TV series, the truth is, McGowan really was the perfect actor for the role, in my opinion. Able to pull off the gentle and scholarly sin, as well as practically oozing charm, giving no reason for the military of the king or even his fellow citizens of Dimchurch to ever suspect he is also the scarecrow. Then, in moments when no one is paying attention to him, McGowan allows a calculating coldness to pass behind his eyes and features. It's an amazing performance, to say the least. It makes you wonder what he might have been able to do in a Batman film, right? I should say that the character in Disney's Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, or as it was known in the UK, Dr. Sin, alias the Scarecrow, is most assuredly a good guy. Very much like an 18th century Batman in some ways. While still leading a band of smugglers, the Scarecrow is aiding the people of Dimchurch, who are being taxed to death and pressed into military services by the forces of the king. So, whether the Scarecrow and his men are stealing to give funds back to the people or staging jailbreaks, as it says in that amazing theme song by Terry Gilkison of the Jungle Book fame, the soldiers might have feared the Scarecrow, but he was beloved by people of Dimchurch for his actions to aid them. And make no mistake about it, the costume and design of the Scarecrow, which was handled by Harry Frampton, is unnerving to say the least. For all intents and purposes, it appears that a Scarecrow just came to life, thundering across Romney Marsh on his horse. To give the appearance of Magowan wearing a burlap sack over his head, it has been said that Frampton ended up using a dishcloth dyed and with stitching on it to resemble the face of a scarecrow. It allowed the actor to breathe and perform without hindrance. The jagged and stitched mouth area not only allowed the character of the scarecrow to communicate in his raspy voice, issuing commands to his fellow smugglers, but it also allowed him to emit that blood-curdling laugh, which was actually provided by Patrick McGowan. Topping the costume off, there's a big floppy hat and straw protruding from underneath, as well as a board underneath the scarecrow's ripped and torn coat, as well as its billowing cloak. It's like I said, it gives off the appearance that some malevolent force caused a scarecrow to just jump off its post in the fields of Dimchurch and began prowling the countryside. Reverend Dr. Christopher Sin is aided in protecting the people of Dim Church by two lieutenants, Mr. Mips, who acts as the sexton of the church, and as the skeletal-looking right-hand man of the scarecrow known as Hellspite, who was portrayed by Minder's George Cole. It is the mask, though, worn by Curlew. Although not peering like its namesake, it is this feathered bird mask that gave me the willies the first time I caught the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. I mean, it tops the creep factor of the Scarecrow himself, in my opinion. Imagine being a king's soldier, and this bird-like nightmare comes riding up on a horse and starts shooting at you. Terrifying, right? Anyway, Curlew is, in fact, John Banks, the son of the local squire, who is frequently in contact with the dastardly General Pugh, which means that Banks is the perfect spy to keep tabs on what the British forces might be up to. Banks, by the way, was played by Sean Scully, who played the dual roles in Disney's 1962 adaptation of The Prince and the Pauper. In addition to the cast I've already mentioned, the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh benefits from the likes of Jeffrey Keene, perhaps best known as Sir Frederick Gray, in a slew of Bond films. Appropriate, as McGowan was once offered the role of James Bond, Oliver Twist's Kay Walsh played the role of Mrs. Waggett, the innkeeper and possibly romantic interest for Mr. Mips. Michael Hordern played the role of Squire Thomas Banks, You might know him best as the narrator for the Paddington Bear stop-motion shorts, or the Oh, Mr. Toad series, which were also animated via stop-motion. He also provided the voice of Frith in the 1978 animated version of Watership Down, or Friar Domingo in the popular 1980 Shogun TV miniseries. And in 1985, he was the narrator or the voice for Older Watson in Young Sherlock Holmes, For all of you Fright fans out there, you might recognize him in his role as the drama critic George Maxwell in the 1973 masterpiece Theater of Blood, starring Vincent Price and Diana Rigg. Eric Pullman played the part of King George III, and this was not the first time he did so. In 1959, he also played the role in John Paul Jones. These are just a few of the actors that stand out in my mind. For what it's worth, The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, or in this case, Dr. Sin, alias The Scarecrow, was released to theaters first in the UK in December of 1963. It didn't air here in the States until the evening of February 9th of 1964. In fact, the first episode premiered against the first appearance of The Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show. So I think it's fair to say that night, some of the target audience missed the first part or at least part of the first episode. And while I made mention that the teleplay by Westerby did a good job of making the character more of a hero and focused more on the high-adventure side of Thorndike's character, make no mistake about it, the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh is perfect for the Halloween season. And, as you're about to hear, the Scarecrow suffers no traitors in his company.
1: What kind of man will sell his friends to the hangman for gold, Ransley? I ain't done that. I never intended to. No! Empty his pockets. There are the names he would sell. Perhaps your names are among them. You were taking that note to the prisoner flag tonight? All right, Kershaw. So
2: was. You think you own us all? You're gonna kill me. You drove my sums away, and the army was after me. Cheat, liar, traitor, convicted by your own
1: words.
0: The sentence for George Ransley is to be hung until dead. Although, one more small spoiler, as shocking as it appears to be in The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, the Scarecrow fakes Ransley's hanging. Although, after the rest of the smugglers leave, most assuredly banishing any thoughts of ever betraying their leader, the Scarecrow informs the shaken and Ransley, who was kind of a traitor, to flee the country and to never return, or he will be hanged for real. Obviously, I wasn't even born when The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh first aired. However, I was able to catch it in the early 90s, thanks to the Disney Channel airing a marathon one Halloween night. As soon as I saw that amazing opening, with that fantastic theme song, and realized Patrick McGoon was involved, all plans of watching anything else went right out the window. I plopped down in front of the TV set and watched all three parts. Then, watched them again. And again luckily i was able to get my hands on the 2008 disney treasures collection back in the day the scarecrow of romney marsh is something that i watch every october with its blend of adventure pulp-like characters and more importantly fantastic performances from the cast it's a real treat any time of the year now i wish that i could say that if you are a subscriber to the disney plus streaming service that you could watch the scarecrow of romney marsh right this second sadly that's not the case. At least not this year. However, there are places you can find it to watch online. And I feel you would be hard-pressed to find a better Halloween treat.
1: Hey there, pop culture retrorama fans. This is Ashley Thomas, a.k.a. the Nerdy Blogger, bringing you the scoop on a favorite Halloween special of mine, 1993's The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury. Pumpkin tree.
3: No, a Halloween tree! The pumpkins on the tree were
0: not mere pumpkins. Each had a face sliced in it. Each face was
3: different. Every nose was a weirder nose. Every mouth smiled hideously in some new way. A thousand grimaces and twice times a thousand
0: glares of fresh-cut eyes. Each blink held the remnant holiday spirit years gone by.
1: This premiered on October 18th of that year on ABC and was produced by Hanna-Barbera. My sister and I happened to catch this one on TV the night it aired. I would have been about 8 years old at the time. I only saw it the one time as a kid but I never forgot it. In fact, I didn't get to watch this one again until a few years ago, well into adulthood. If you've not seen it before, here's the premise. Four friends, Jenny, Ralph, Wally, and Tom Skelton go to meet up with their friend Pip to go trick-or-treating. Unfortunately, they catch Pip jumping into an ambulance because he needs an emergency appendectomy. Because this is a good set of friends. They don't want to start Halloween, Pip's favorite holiday, without him. So they follow after the ambulance, taking a shortcut through a spooky ravine. The friends catch a glimpse of what appears to be a translucent Pip running around the trail, and they follow him until he reaches a dark mansion, where the kids meet up with Mr. Carapace? clavicle, Mound Shroud. Mr. Mound Shroud sees their costumes and asks, do you know what those mean? He educates them about their costumes and what they symbolize and their relationship to Halloween. On this adventure, where Mr. Mound Shroud takes them to all kinds of places like Mexico, Egypt, and Europe, the children learn not only the origin of their costumes and of Halloween, but they learn how to look death in the face and not to fear it. Through this, they also not only learn the true meaning of Halloween, but the importance and strength of true friendship. Man, this is such a powerful story. And no spoilers from me, but my goodness, that finale tore me up as a kid. Shoot, it still tears me up as an adult. As I mentioned, I only saw it the one time, but I never forgot it. It really made an impression. You've got an excellent cast with the production of this special. You've got the author himself, Ray Bradbury, narrating The Halloween Tree. And Mr. Mountroud is played by the late, great Leonard Nimoy. It's so much fun to hear Nimoy in a creepy, even villainous type role instead of the normal, serious, and matter-of-fact Mr. Spock. A few years ago, I decided I wanted to listen to the audiobook of this novella that The Halloween Tree is based upon. And while this is a pretty good adaptation, I think one thing that really stuck with me from the novella, and I think the Halloween special does well is exemplify this passage. I think this is one worth revisiting every year. I'm going to leave you with this passage. Mr. Moundshroud, who are you? And Mr. Moundshroud, way up there on the roof, sent his thoughts back. I think you know, boy. I think you know. Will we meet again, Mr. Moundshroud? Many years from now. Yes. I'll come for you, and a last thought from Tom. Oh, Mr. Moundshroud, will we ever stop being afraid of nights and death? And the thought returned. When you reach the stars, boy, yes, and live there forever, all the fears will go, and death himself will die. Tom listened, heard, and waved quietly. Mr. Moundshroud, far off, lifted his hand. Click. Tom's front door went shut. His pumpkin like a skull on the vast tree sneezed and went dark. Happy Halloween.
3: Hi everybody, Trapal Rock Rockford J, and I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite Halloween memories from when I was a kid. October 29, 1983 was the day that my mom and dad threw a Halloween party for me and my two stepsisters and for all the kids in the neighborhood. They took over my grandparents' garage and had it all decorated up with some great vintage Halloween decorations, some streamers and jack o' lanterns and spider webs. And there was a spooky haunted house record playing in the background. And we had hot dogs and a lot of Halloween candy. And we bobbed for apples. And we played that game where you turn out the lights and somebody passes around a bowl of grapes. And somebody tells you it's a bowl of eyeballs. And somebody passes around a, a bowl of cooked spaghetti. And says it's worms from the graveyard, and my dad even told some stories from the Alvin Schwartz and Stephen Gamble book, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And we had such a great time, and it was such a cool thing for my mom and dad to do. And at the end of the evening, I plopped down in front of the old floor model TV set to watch the pilot episode of a show called Tales from the Dark Side, which is a show that became one of my very favorites when I was growing up. Tales from the Dark Side was a half-hour horror anthology series that ran in first-run syndication, and I saw it on the superstation, WGN, a station that was owned by Tribune Entertainment, which was also the production company behind Tales from the Dark Side. Now, being an anthology series, each episode had its own cast, usually with one or two well-known actors, and each story was self-contained with a beginning, middle, and an end. Nothing carried over from week to week. And the series kicked off with an episode called Trick or Treat, which was perfect for for the Halloween season because it revolved around Halloween night. The story was set in the time of the Great Depression and involved a greedy old miser named Gideon Hackles, who was played by the character actor Barnard Hughes, someone I perhaps remember most as the wily grandpa from The Lost Boys. Everybody in town was under Mr. Hackles thumb because he rented their homes to them. He ran the store where he extended credit to everybody and he kept everyone in debt, which he meticulously kept track of with old-fashioned IOUs. But every Halloween, he insisted that all the children of the community come to his house to trick-or-treat and to search through his house for their parents' IOUs, a house which he had rigged up with all of these crazy Rube Goldberg contraptions to scare the kids before they they could find the IOUs, and he loved to scare all of these poor kids.
1: Since you're new to the valley, Billy, perhaps you don't know that every Halloween I take all these IOUs and I hide them in my house. Then I invite all you young trick-or-treaters to come and search for them, and if you find them, all of your father's debts are forgiven, forgotten, canceled forever. Your father can make a fresh start.
3: But this particular Halloween, the tables turned when the spirits of the night decided to teach him a lesson in what might be considered a spookier take on Dickens' A Christmas Carol, with a darker ending. This was such a great show to see after a Halloween party. It's spooky, but has some wry humor. It's got a mean old man and a scary old house. It's got kids trick-or-treating in Halloween costumes. And there's even a classic witch on a broomstick. It's just a satisfying watch that hits all your Halloween buttons. Behind the scenes, in addition to Barnard Hughes, the cast also featured Max Wright, who was the dad on ALF, and Eddie Jones, who was Clark Kent's dad on Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. The The script was co-written by George A. Romero of Night of the Living Dead fame, and he was also a producer on the series. And this particular episode was the directing debut of actor Bob Balaban, somebody i probably remember most fondly as Francois Truffaut's translator in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Trick or Treat was a successful launch for the series, as Tales from the Dark Side debuted as a weekly series in 1984 and ran for four seasons, clocking in at nearly 100 episodes. You can get the entire series on DVD, and maybe it's streaming somewhere? I don't know. But it's such a fun half hour. It puts you in the spirit of the season, It was a perfect way to end an evening of Halloween fun when I was 10 years old. So, if you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a long time, you should track it down. It's a fun time, and you're going to enjoy it. And remember, the dark side is always there, waiting for us to enter. Waiting to enter us. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight, and have a happy Halloween!
4: Hello listeners, Allison Preston here with a spooky not Halloween television episode with a Halloween feel. I love when I can find a Halloween style television show plot within a series normal episodes. Case in point, the Quantum Leap episode, A Portrait for Troyan, tackles the paranormal happenings of an old mansion with a lake and graveyard full of tragic pasts and mysteries that would frighten any time of year. Los Angeles, California. After a voiceover about the surprises of leaping through time and into various lives...
3: Leaping into other people's lives, I feel a lot like Don
2: Quixote. A stranger, out of place in time, on an impossible quest, sent to right the unrightable wrong, to fight the unbeatable
4: foe. And
0: the wild wings of fortune will carry me onward
2: This is glory.
3: Something tells me I'm in big trouble.
4: Dr. Sam Beckett leaps into the life of Dr. Timothy Tim Mintz, parapsychologist at Stanford University, who bears an incredible resemblance to the show's creator, Donald Belsario, and, as Al informs him, trying to make contact with the other side, but has been unsuccessful so far. It is February seventh, 1971, and Sam is in the persona of Dr. Mintz to save the life of artist and illustrator of graphic novels, Troy and Giovanni Claridge, whose husband Julian, who wrote the novels, drowned in a lake at the family home three years earlier, whose body was never found. Julian's tragic death is attributed to a family curse that involves tragic, violent, and unnatural deaths. Al believes that Dr. Mintz is crazy about Troyan because after the initial belief he has been abducted by aliens, he expresses his worry for her. He informs Sam that Troyan will drown in the same lake in two days. Wet spots and footprints from Troyan's bedroom leading to the attic where Troyan and Julian worked together, a disembodied voice calling out to her, a family graveyard, paintings dripping with water two additional drowned bodies in the lake, and a mysterious housekeeper. It's all enough to scare anyone. Will Sam be able to credit Dr. Mintz with an amazing discovery while keeping Troyan from falling victim to the Claridge family curse that she tried so hard to protect her husband from? Gotta love those spooky encounters in December, am I right? A Portrait for Troyan aired as the 11th episode of Quantum Leap's second season on December 13, 1989. The episode's story concept was by John Hill and Scott Shepard, with Shepard and Donald Belisario penning the teleplay. Deborah Pratt, the show's co-executive producer and a writer on the series, and who was also married to Belisario until 1991, played Troy and Giovanni Claridge. She would go on to narrate the saga cell, or premise of the series, during the opening credits and provide the voice of Ziggy. And yes, the mirror image is Donald Belisario, in an uncredited cameo as Dr. Timothy Mintz. The name Troyan is the name of Sario and Pratt's then four-year-old daughter whose own acting career was just starting. I first saw this episode in the fall of 2001 during a sci-fi channel weekday marathon about a month after I started watching the series in weekday reruns. I don't remember being particularly impressed the first time I saw it, though I thought it made a great Halloween-style episode. My opinion of it softened after seeing it a second time, and to this day it is one of my favorite episodes of Quantum Leap. While I like to think of this episode as having a Halloween flair featuring the paranormal and a huge mysterious old house, the series wouldn't get a proper Halloween episode until season 3. That episode, my friends, has its own strange story. As for Sam Beckett, he moves on to the next life he needs to change for the better. The reused cliffhanger from the leap in on season 1's Kamikaze Kid. Expect the unexpected, right? For more nostalgic goodness, you can find me over on my blog, Allison's Written Words, as well as at Pop Culture Retrorama and on Twitter at Geeks out. For Pop Culture Retrorama, this is Allison Preston. Happy Halloween.
2: Hello everyone, Earl Green here for Pop Culture Retrorama, keeping things spooky and yet kind of timely. I've been watching the Freshly released in the UK, animated reconstruction of the 1960s Doctor Who story Fury from the Deep, which involves seaweed coming out of the North Sea and taking over human beings because it's mutant seaweed. And now they're mutant human beings, and bad things are going to happen if they get to the mainland. And of course, that is when the Doctor and friends show up. Now, as always, there's sort of a question of how authentic is it. I think it could be that the animated version... It may actually be an improvement on the original in the creep factor, because it does get kind of tense. It gets kind of scary, and it's still a lot of fun to finally be able to see it all happen, even though we've been able to hear it happen for many years on CD, whether narrated or otherwise. In fact, Fury from the Deep has been available in two narrated forms, one narrated by Fraser Hines, who played Jamie in the 1960s Doctor Who episodes, including this one, and one by Tom Baker in character as the fourth Doctor, looking back as though he is recounting an old adventure of his. That one was out in the early 90s, and it's kind of fun.
0: This particular story took place when I was in my first regenerative form, when I seemed to roam the universe tripping over things, generally getting in the way, and often making some rather silly mistakes. Actually, at the time, it was quite good fun.
2: But it's fun, finally, to be able to see the story instead of just hear it. And here's a a pet theory of mine, something I'm going to leave you with here. Uh, Fury from the Deep is probably kind of obscure for... Many casual and devoted viewers of Doctor Who because it simply hasn't been available in a visual form before now. But I like to think that the fallout from Fury of the Deep exists in a much more recent Doctor Who story that many more of you probably have seen. That one being The Waters of Mars, one of the last full-length episodes for David Tennant. In that episode, there is water on the planet Mars that, if it comes in contact with human beings... It takes them over and sort of makes them part of a group mind. So my question is, could frozen water in the form of some sort of meteorite have impacted Earth and infected the seaweed that we see in Fury from the Deep? Hmm. Something to think about. Someone's probably connected those dots in a comic strip or a a novel already, but I still like to think of it as my pet theory, and now you can have it too. Thanks for listening. Hope you're keeping it spooky. And we'll be back with more soon.
0: And friends, I think that brings us to the end of this second Halloween special for the Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. As always, I want to thank you all for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show. And I certainly hope you are enjoying the direction we're going to be taking in the upcoming new season of the podcast. Naturally, I thank my good friends and fellow contributors from the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. She's been blogging about the nerdy life since 2010 on her own blog at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com. She is a contributor to the pop culture retrorama site and fangirlish.com. You can reach Ashley on Twitter at the nerdy blogger and on Facebook at facebook.com slash the nerdy blogger. Earl Green, besides being a frequent writer on the Pop Culture retrorama site, shares his many geek and pop culture passion projects at thelogbook.com. Rockford J can be found every single day sharing his love of the horror genre on the Saturday Frights Facebook page. Allison Preston can be found on the Pop Culture retrorama site, Facebook, and her own spot on the internet at alisonviniziorights.com. I will naturally be sharing links to each of my fellow contributors on the podcast on this post over on the pop culture retrorama site for what it's worth you can generally find me writing multiple times a day on the site and if you want to check it out you can go to www.popcultureretrorama.com in addition to that site i'm also contributing daily on the facebook page for the site as well as the diary of an arcade employee and saturday frights facebook pages too if you have any comments on the podcast, or maybe suggestions for a future episode, you can contact me at popculture at gmail.com. The Pop Culture Retro-Rama Podcast is available on iTunes and Google Play, as well as Spotify and Stitcher. If you like the show, why not help us attract new listeners by leaving us a review a rating, and subscribing. Help spread the word about the show with your friends and fellow pop culture aficionados. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our show is courtesy of Earl Green's TheLogbook.com, kindly used with his permission. As always, I want to personally thank The Retroist, who, for nearly 10 years, allowed me to share my love of all things retro on his site, including creating podcasts like this one and more. So until next time, from all of us here at the Pop Culture Retrorama site, Happy Halloween. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Pop Culture Retrorama podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by any of the businesses and individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe.
3: That's right? Hi, the Pumpkin King! <laughs>